Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Mark Santum. Uh, well, if you've checked your uh, watch or your Christian calendar, today marks the day, the start of Holy Week. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, where we will explore how salvation is promised through Christ. Um, Bethany mentioned the Tenebrae service on Thursday night, where we will reflect on salvation that is made possible through the sacrifice of Christ. And of course, next Sunday, big game day, right, for uh, the Super Bowl for churches, right, if you want to put it like that. And that is uh, very demeaning compared to what the celebration is truly worth. Salvation secured and celebrated through the resurrected Christ. And that's what we'll be doing here a week from today. So it's interesting. um, When you see things from different angles, all right, it can be interesting. It can be hurtful a little bit. Here's one example. So dad, let me talk to the, the fathers or the husbands in here, the husbands. Let me talk to the husbands, right? So were you ever in an argument with your wife, right? And you secretly, you were so jazzed about this uh, argument, or as my dad would say, intensive fellowship. And so you're like, oh, yeah, bring it on, because you, you, have, you have the ducks lined up in a row, all right? You have an airtight argument. You have a defense exhibit A, B, and C, and they're all coming out, right? And so anyhow, you, you launch the best missiles of your argument, and so um, you're just feeling good about yourself. And then out of nowhere, like the Holy Spirit will give your wife inspiration. <laughs> or just because wives are, you know, right seemingly most of the time. And she'll hit you with a different angle that you hadn't seen. That's a, that's a little humbling, isn't it? And so you are, you are charged up. You're on top of this argument. And then your wife will say something like, well, if you hadn't bought that miter saw that we didn't agree to on the credit card that we're not supposed to use, we wouldn't be in this position right now. The different angle hits you, right? And so when you get hit with a different angle like that, that can be humbling. A lot of times, though, seeing the same thing from a different angle, it can be good, it can be refreshing, it can make you think differently, right? So I have a few visual examples to show you of, of very famous sites that, uh, that most of us have seen in person or you've seen on the internet or on TV. Let's look at the first one. Um, that is what? The Taj Mahal. Beautiful. Everyone has, uh, if you've seen pictures, you've seen the Taj Mahal like that. But there's a different angle of the Taj Mahal that many of us have not seen, and that is from behind, the abject poverty that surrounds it. Next picture. There are what? The pyramids of Giza, right? You are alone out in the desert for hundreds, maybe thousands of miles. But nay, look at the next angle. You can see that it's right up next to a metropolitan area. This is almost like where Virginia Beach meets Chesapeake. Am I right? Look at all the land you can get out there in that swampy desert. All right. Uh, the next one. Uh, that is what? The, right? The, the, the Parthenon. And so that's a beautiful, uh, you know, you can read uh, in antiquity about the, uh, the stature, uh, the historical, historical significance of the Parthenon. But you can also, from a different angle, you can see it from a McDonald's. The magic evaporates, does it not, a little bit. 
Uh, next one. Yeah, so uh, if any of you have been in New York City, this is what? Central Park, beautiful Central Park. But if you're going to get a bird's eye view, how awesome is that? Central Park uh, from, from a bird's eye view. Different angle. And I think there's one more. Uh, oh, yeah. How many have been to Mount Rushmore? All right. You've probably seen that. So if you back way, way up in a helicopter, you get to see that angle. And all of a sudden, those faces don't look so big. Is that right? Well, why did I show you that? To show you the importance of seeing things um, from different angles. This morning, because it's Palm Sunday, we are going to look um, at that common story that uh, many of us know. In fact, when I knew I was preaching today, my first thought was, is there another passage I can talk about besides the triumphal entry? Because I've heard that every year of my life. And, um, and I thought, well, Lord, let me just help to see this uh, story from a different angle. So today, we are going to look at this story from John chapter 12 from four different angles or four different vantage points. One is the angle of the disciples. The second is the angle of the religious leaders. The third is the angle from the crowds. And fourth is the angle from Christ himself. So we'll see four, uh, four views or four angles of the same story. Um, our passage today comes from the book of John. Um, we'll land there most of the time, but we'll also pull in some information from the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But again, they seen the story of Christ, and they are seeing this story, again, from different angles, which is very helpful. So uh, let's read uh, this, um, these uh, eight verses here from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and was raised from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard uh, what he had done, that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you today. We thank you that much of this world has gone after you. Lord, most of the people, if not all, in this sanctuary today have gone after you. And Lord, we first uh, confess to you that the only reason that we have gone after you is because you first went after us. Lord, we love because you first loved us. We chase you because you first chased us down and captured us with your love. So today, Lord, as we uh, set our hearts for this pilgrimage, Lord, for Holy Week, we pray that uh, your word would come and um, edify us convict us. Holy Spirit, come and bring the words off the page and alive to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, help us to see things from different angles and most importantly from your angle. Lord, we just invite you here today as we journey through this passage in John. Lord, uh, re uh, recognizing and remembering that you are the, the centerpiece of all that is done and said in these scriptures. We love you. Help us to know you more closely and deeply today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's look at the first angle, shall we? So this, uh, we just read what is happening. Here's the action. What did the disciples see? What was their angle? If you 
Um, you can go to the next slide. If you wanted to summarize the angle of the disciples kind of in one phrase, it would be this. What in the world is Jesus up to? Now, this wouldn't be the first time that the disciples were clueless, right? We could have a whole sermon called The Cluelessness of the Disciples. Um, a few examples, like remember in Mark 8, Jesus miraculously feeds hundreds of people with bread, right? And, and it's amazing. And so afterwards, he calls, uh, he calls the disciples aside. He's like, huddle up, huddle up. Here's the deal. You have to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we do. Of course, Jesus meaning be aware, be, be cautious, be on guard against the yeast of their teaching because it spreads like, you know, almost like a cancer spread like yeast does through bread. And so, you know, what they heard, they heard, huh. So you know what? So the next time, next time Jesus needs to feed people, he's going to have us go buy bread. And whatever we can't do, we can't buy bread from the Pharisees. I don't know, because they might poison it. I don't know, it could be something like that. Disciples are like, yeah, you got it, high-fiving each other. Whereas Jesus, if he were as ungracious as I am, they would come up and be like, hello, McFly, anybody home? That is a hello McFly moment for the disciples because they totally missed the point. Um, one of the most, uh, if you remember this story, um, Peter, um, right after um, Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, the Rock Johnson, if you remember that, <laughs> Jesus tells him of the need for him to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to be persecuted, to die, and to be resurrected. All right, the will of God. And then what does Peter say? Lord, no, may it never be. Far be it from, from uh, this, that this would happen to you. So he is speaking um, the opposite of the word of God, just like Satan always does. That's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan, but he was speaking uh, the anti, I mean, the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ has been foretold and prophesied for hundreds of thousands of years. And Peter say, no, may it not happen to you like that. And so these are just two of the many example, examples where the disciples, they are just flat out clueless. So after the disciples witnessed Jesus riding in on the donkey through this mass of humanity, they're trying to figure things out. We find out in Matthew 21 that uh, when Jesus left Bethany and was approaching the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples on ahead of him and said, listen, I need you to go ahead to the Jerusalem suburb of Bethpage, and I need you to, there's, there's a donkey in this colt, I need you to go get them for me. So he doesn't even give them the big picture, right? Um, and just to, if you guys haven't noticed, sometimes Jesus doesn't give us the big picture, does he? When, whenever he gets that, when he, he gives you that direction, just be grateful for it and take it. Sometimes you get nothing. All you do is you get a command to go in faith. And that's what they did. And they had a little bit of faith because they're basically, they're saying, did Jesus just send us to go steal some, some animals? I feel like I'm stealing an Amazon package off someone's porch at Christmas time. So Jesus says, oh, if somebody says, what are you doing? Um, just say, bro, like, why are you stealing my donkey and his colt? Jesus said, just tell them that I need it. Just tell them I need it. Just drop my name. How many ever drop somebody's name, you got yourself a job or a discount, huh? Um, I just tell you this real quick. I, uh, I remember the stories I was going through. I had a friend of mine in college up at Geneva College, and uh, he uh, messed up his bike, 
you know, he, he had a great bike, and he, he, uh, he, he crashed it and didn't have much money, so he really wanted to get it repaired. And he's like, man, what am I going to do? I can't I don't have money to get this bike repaired. So my roommate Mike says to Jeff and says, hey, um, you know that, that bicycle shop, the repair shop downtown in Beaver Falls? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, well, you know what? You should just go there. He's like, my cousin, he owns that place. He's like, what? Yeah. He goes, just take it down there and, uh, and, and tell, him, tell him that you know Mike, and then he'll give you that discount. So the reason the story is funny is because um, that wasn't true. <laughs> he didn't tell us that he went down there and was like, hey, I know Mike. Like, Who's Mike? So sometimes name dropping works, sometimes it doesn't. In, the, in, in this case, when you drop Jesus in his name, you're uh, normally pretty good to go. So the next thing you know, Jesus selects a donkey uh, to hop on, and he rides into Jerusalem, into throngs of excited, energized people. Um, if you look at the next slide here, this is what the scriptures say about the disciples' ability to comprehend this. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. When Jesus was glorified, they understood this. Um, in Luke 24, it'll tell us that Jesus was glorified when he was resurrected. So you see now the resurrection, you know, this is a week away and the disciples don't realize this is just the first of many times throughout this next week where they have, will have no idea what's going on. They're going to be afraid. They're going to be disillusioned. They're going to be scared because they cannot grasp the meaning of what's going on, and they won't be able to fully grasp it until after Jesus is resurrected. All right? So that's the angle of the disciples. Angle number one. The second angle is from the religious leaders. The angle of the religious leaders. If you go, um, if you have to summarize in one statement what the religious leaders' angle it is, it's this. They're saying this. This could be our chance. Let's end this guy, and the sooner, the better. That's their angle on this whole thing. It's almost like uh, their opportunity. Maybe it's like entrapment. You see, for a while, the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling uh, Jewish council, they had political influence, judicial influence, religious influence, under the authority of Roman rule, of course. They had eyes of disdain upon Jesus for a long time. They didn't like his revolutionary ideals. They didn't like his miracles. And they certainly did not like his claims to deity. So the rabbis, the chief priests, and the Pharisees, um, they realized at this point that Jesus' ministry is a far more serious threat than they had first thought. Now, Jesus wasn't the first one to come along and claimed he was the Messiah. There was plenty of chumps that came along before and said, hey, I'm the Messiah, follow me. The religious leaders have seen them. They've seen them. They were a flash in the pan, and they went away. And that's what they were hoping would be the same of Jesus. But they find out Jesus is much more than a flash in the pan, and he's a pain in their behind is what he's becoming to the point here, too, where they are scrambling now to do something more drastic. Until now, the religious leaders were not planning on getting rid of Jesus this early in the game. But through Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's almost as though Jesus is forcing their hand. What he's doing, he's syncing something up. He's syncing up human plans of the religious leaders and the divine plan of God, which is in place since the foundation of the world. And these two things are coming together. So Jesus' timetable for arrest and execution uh, in the minds of religious leaders, they have just been moved up. So we learn back in John 11 that the chief priests, this is what it says in John 11, the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that anyone knew where Jesus was, they should let him know so that they might arrest him. 
Why, why, why all of a sudden was this big surge of urgency in John 11 and 12? Well, the word has gotten out about this man, uh, this man named Lazarus. He was actually brought back from the dead. Now all the people are caught up in this resurrection frenzy, and Jesus' fame is spreading like wildfire. So for the religious leaders, they're at DEFCON 1, real fast. They are scrambling because he is upsetting their entire religious apple cart. John 12, 17 says this. This is beautiful. The crowd continued to bear witness about the Lazarus miracle, and it drew people to Jesus. So here's a, we'll just step aside here for a quick practical application. How are you, how are we as a church, corporately and you, as your family, individually, how are you bearing witness to the world about Jesus? Are people being drawn to Jesus because of the way you love your neighbors, the way that you serve them, the way that you just treat them with dignity and respect, the ways that you say, hey, can I pray for you? Um, giving testimony, say, hey, can I tell you what Jesus has done in my life? Because remember, we live, in a, we live in a culture where if you just begin to quote scriptures from this Bible, they will look at you like a deer in the headlights or give you one of these, right? Uh, because this does not have the street credibility that it should. We know that. You know, the further, especially the further away you get from the Bible Belt, the more irrelevant this is in their eyes. But you know what somebody can't take away from you is your testimony. Your love. They, can't, they can't refute that because, you know, the old adage, you may be the only Bible that somebody reads. And the Bible is not meant, if you read this Bible, it does not draw attention to yourself, does it? It draws attention to Jesus. So that's just, I, I, I love the part of the reason that the Pharisees, the religious leaders were so upset is because when people saw the miracle of Jesus, they would not shut up about it. And the more people they told, the more people that showed up, and it was uh, driving them crazy. So let's drive the enemies of God crazy by drawing people to Jesus. Amen. And because of this, religious leaders, they wanted to get rid of Lazarus too, right? They wanted to make sure he stayed dead this time, right? This isn't a miracle Max situation. Maybe that he was just mostly dead, right? They wanted him all the way dead um, as a way to silence his testimony of the power of Jesus. Verse 19 says this, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. So what are they talking about? And I put in my own, my own quotes there, by waiting. So there's two groups of the Pharisees. There were the ones that were a little more bold and audacious. They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted his family dead. You know, they were like the mob boss. And the others were like, let's just wait and see how this pans out. And so the, the group of Pharisees that were a little more uh, aggressive, they were saying, they were talking to the ones that said, hey, let's be patient. They were saying this to them. You see that you are gaining nothing by waiting. Look, the whole world has gone after them. See, that's, we played it too safe. And now look at all these people. We, if we would have finished Jesus off, you know, months ago, we wouldn't be having this problem. This is the discussion of the religious leaders. That's the second angle. The third angle is this. The third angle of uh, Hosanna would be from the angle of the crowds, the throngs of people. You had to summarize this, that you could summarize their enthusiasm by uh, adventures and missing the point, right? Um, you could say this as a summary statement. Polish his crown. Let's make today a coronation day for our new king. That is their angle. So 
Who were these group of people that wanted to make Jesus king? There was a whole ton of them. There were a lot of them. So the first group is this. They were the people that made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is culminated in the celebration of Passover. You know, Passover is a celebration of freedom, of liberation from Egyptian bondage into, um, into freedom, right? So just to give you an idea, at about that time, there was an average, there was approximately 50,000 people that lived in the city of Jerusalem. During the time of the Passover, that went up times five. So there was roughly a quarter of a million people crammed into the city of Jerusalem uh, during uh, this celebration. And as you would imagine, the Romans were on high, high alert. Can you imagine being a cop working Times Square on December 31? Can you imagine just like, oh man, there's so many people, so many things could go wrong. So now here are the Romans trying to keep order. 250,000 people in the city, and to make it worse, they're all directing their attention to this one guy who they're trying to make king. So tell me, these, these guys now, they're, they're, on, they're on DEFCON 1 as well. So that's the first group of people, the ones that made the pilgrimage. The second ones are people that were traveling from Bethany with Jesus already. Do you remember why um, so many people were already following him from Bethany? We already mentioned this. Because when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, it actually worked. And that turned a few heads. So in Bethany, the whole city of Bethany pretty much got up and they are following Jesus. They probably would have gone to Jerusalem anyhow uh, for the Passover, but they are, they are Jesus' entourage at this point. They just want to go and they want to see what will this guy do next. So the pilgrims, upon hearing this news, they come pouring out of the eastern gate of Jerusalem to meet Jesus um, on the donkey who at this point uh, is arriving from Beth Page. And so you have these two throngs of people all coming together. And this is the passage they're talking about in John chapter 12. Um, and so in verse 13, it says this. Um, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So thanks to the... Uh, the glorious magic of Hobby Lobby, we were able to recreate this a little bit, right? Um, thank you, Jesus, for Hobby Lobby. Um, so, just to give you an idea, these, uh, this is an example of, uh, of maybe a palm frond, something like this, that they were waving. Uh, we've all seen these. Um, but to give you an idea, the waving of the palm branch is significant. It is a uh, Jewish national symbol, right? Um, and it's a gesture of rejoicing, of victory, of blessing. And so what happened, they, as Jesus come down, they would wave this, and as, as the donkey would come forth, they would lay this down so the donkey would cross over it in Jesus. And that was a way of them saying, we submit to your authority, we submit to your royalty. All right, this is just the way it happens. Over, it's interesting, over 150 years earlier, the Jewish people, they encountered a man named Judas Maccabeus. Everyone ever heard of him? So if you want to read, it's a fascinating story about the Maccabean revolt. There were Syrian, the Syrian authorities had a stronghold there in Jerusalem. So Judas Maccabeus, he went, uh, took them on, defeated them, uh, reinstituted temple worship. And as he came back into the city, all the people, they had the palm, they had the palm fronds, the leaves, and they waved this as a, as a victory of uh, Jewish independence. So this isn't, this isn't a new thing, right, for, for, the, for the Jews. This is a longstanding tradition. Uh, it's interesting, the whole um, Judas Maccabeus thing, that is why uh, the Jews today celebrate what is known as Hanukkah. Um, and so there's the, the quick history of that. 
So the first thing was the, uh, was the palm, the palm branches. The second thing that we know so much about the story is the shouting of Hosanna. Now, Hosanna, uh, which Bethany said earlier, um, essentially and basically means save us now. Um, when you dig a little bit deeper, it, it carried this term, um, kind of three terms. It means, Lord, come quickly. Lord, conquer thoroughly. And Lord, reign perpetually. That's what they were crying when they were saying this. Lord, come quickly. Lord, conquer thoroughly. Lord, reign perpetually. Lord, save us now. Lord, save us now. When we mean now, we mean now. Look at the Romans. They're breathing down their neck. Thank God. Jesus has come on the scene, and he's going to save us now. Now, this, uh, this Hosanna cry is not something that was new. This comes actually from Psalm 118. And we're going to re we'll read a portion of it now, and it's great. When you read a portion of Psalm 118, you can actually see there's other ties into um, the prophetic uh, ministry of Jesus and who he is. Psalm 118, 19 through, 6, through 26. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. Next slide. The stone... This, this sound familiar? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's where that popular phrase comes from. And then finally, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So some people, did you know, some, here's a little known fact. Some people were so excited about the Hosanna cry that in Jerusalem, they even got their own um, personalized license plates that said, yeah. I was uh, digging through uh, my old, I had this big tub of all kind of things from my glory days. And uh, this was actually on my Honda Civic Si back in the 90s. So I'm guessing that I'm giving myself credit. You know, I really knew how to spell Hosanna, but somebody else beat me to it in the state of Pennsylvania. So I pulled this out, and uh, as you imagine, this was a lot of interesting conversation starters. So anyhow, I, I appreciated it so much that I did, I did keep it. They really didn't have cars back then, but they would have. Uh, had they had that, that would have been great. Um, so here's the deal. The majority of the people related this Hosanna cry to the promised Messiah, one that would come and rule out of the line of David. So when John 12, 15 ends with, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, they are thinking of a military and a political deliverer. After all, this is Passover, and everyone is remembering when the people of God were delivered from Egyptian oppression. Now, hey, it's a, here's the Messiah. He is here on, on the scene to save the day and to save us from Roman oppression. So this is what the crowd is thinking. They're thinking, oh, the stage is set. The Roman Emperor Tiberius, oh, he has no idea what's about to hit him. The Roman army, they think they're all big and bad. Jesus is about to come and unleash the powers of heaven. The angels are going to come, and they're going to wipe everyone out, and we are going and, and, uh, to see, um, finally, independence for the Jews once again. That's what they're thinking. That's what they're hoping. But we have one more angle to look at, the angle of Jesus himself. If Jesus had to summarize uh, one simple statement from his angle, I think it would be this. So it begins. 
the prophecies of untold amount of prophets over hundreds of years, it's all hinging upon the beginning of Holy Week, the week of the Passion. Um, in fact, it was uh, this saying was so inspired, if you go to the next slide, it was even picked up by King Theoden before the Battle of Helm's Deep. Uh, am I right? So for those of you Lord of the Rings lovers, I love you. For those Lord of the Rings haters, I shall pray for you. Um, but in like that, if, you, if you're familiar with the movie, when he says, so it begins, he realized that the victory that, that was ahead was only going to come on the other side of a very difficult war and battle. There was a lot, there was a lot of rough stuff to go through before you could uh, embrace the beauty of victory. Same thing for Jesus. So Jesus is indeed setting the stage, but is one is a far different one than the crowds think that he's setting, right? It is a far grander stage. It's one of eternal significance. This is a drama that Jesus is setting up that, that eclipses the small temporal political place settings of this world, which are passing away. And it gives way to the promise of an eternal kingdom through a king on the cross. Even as I read this, um, I was drawn uh, to Revelation 11, where it says, the kingdom of this temporary world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. That very kingdom that we're talking about in Revelation, the kingdom that we will enjoy for all eternity, it is being ushered in right now, right now through the, the death, the resurrection of, of Christ, the giving of the Holy Spirit is all happening. This kingdom is being established right now in John chapter 12. So Christ, did you know, he accepts, even though uh, it's a different expectation than the crowds, he accepts their, their praise. When they, when they hail him as the Messiah, he doesn't be like, oh, please, please, you guys are too kind. Those are all delusions of grandeur. Really, I, I'm not him. Of course not, because he is the Messiah. He is the king. However, the, the juxtaposition comes whenever you realize the role of the Messiah is different than the, what they have in their minds. And what should have been the first clue to these people that the Messiah the Messiah's role was different than what they hoped for, what should have been obvious. Jesus came riding in on a humble donkey, not a war horse, all right? When Jesus comes the second time, that, my friends, shall be a different story. But the first time, he came in on a hum humble donkey, mighty kings bent on conquest. They ride in on war horses, surrounded by their entourages and their chariots. But Jesus rides in on a slow donkey, which represents patience, humility, peace, and servanthood. John 12, 15 tells us that this was a direct fulfillment from the prophecy of the, of the prophet Zechariah over 500 years earlier. Let's look at that. That is Zechariah 9, 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion, for behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a, such a substantial event that Zechariah prophesied this 500 years earlier. The ushering in of the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom, is happening now. But it's, it's, it's happening very much on the down low for, for people that have eyes to see. Though Christ comes slowly and humbly, he is the king, and he comes with absolute surety, with unwavering purpose, and with a divine blood that will soon be poured out for the redemption of his people. Before this man Jesus can be hailed as the victorious king, he must first be embraced as the suffering servant. And that was a hard pill for them to swallow. That was a hard angle for them to see. You see, a revolutionary king 
arrives on a white horse and comes with shouts of victory, not to shed tears over the city that will soon face destruction and over the people who cannot see the way of salvation that God has provided for them. Instead of a triumphal entry from Jesus' angle, it was more like a tearful entry. Let's read that. This comes from Luke 9. 1941 through 44, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, even, or if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And Jesus is saying this, that he looks over the city, like, as in this picture, with tears in his eyes, weeping, grieved of heart over the city of Jerusalem. This is not what the Hosanna wavers. They did not come to see a suffering servant cry over a city. They wanted to see a military champion come and take charge and bring victory. Um, you see, as Jesus looked over that, he knew historically that in about 30 years from that point in time, Jesus is prophesying here that uh, in AD 66, the Jews would rebel against Emperor Nero. And in AD 70, the, um, the, the straw broke the camel's back. The Romans would come in, besiege the city, um, do all, all untold damage to the people and destroy the temple, not leaving one stone upon another. For as horrible as that is, Jesus was far more concerned about their hearts than about their buildings, wasn't he? So uh, let's land the plane with this today. Jesus Christ is the, he's the promised and exclusive, everyone say exclusive, exclusive way of salvation. There is no other name given, no matter what this world says. Let's be reminded, there is no other name given whereby men can be saved. There is only one way. God provided this, this, this salvation, not in a form of doing and obeying certain rules, in a form of a person, the man God named Jesus. So here he is. His disciples misunderstood him, but that did not stop him from setting his face like flint to the cross. His fans wanted to make him king of Israel and deliverer from Rome. But he came to be king of their hearts and deliver them from their sin. His enemies wanted to kill him, but they, what they didn't know is that he came to offer his own life voluntarily as a sacrifice of death so that his very enemies might have life. And that is a heavenly viewpoint of Palm Sunday, that God is glorified in the sending of his son, that he would seek and save those who are lost, those people like me, those people like you. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is still on the move. He's still riding, you know that. He's riding to our hearts, our minds, our lives, our relationships, and to our most difficult and painful circumstances. So the question is, is Jesus, he's riding in your life right now. He's, 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 in a, he's on the move. So how will you respond how will you, will you respond like the disciples, maybe just be confused and disillusioned? If you don't understand everything, that's okay. 
Maybe you'd be like the religious leaders and be angry. How many of you were honest would be, were, were ever angry at how the Lord moved in your life? My hand is the first one that's up. Like, Lord, how could you do that? We're not seeing things from his angle. Or by the crowd, some of us just put, Lord, we love you. We, we put false expectations on you. God, you're going to move this way. I know you're going to move just like this. And God moves like that. And we become angry and disillusioned. Let me just say, if you, if, you, if you don't know Jesus, then let me just say this as we close. Out of love, he is weeping over your soul, just like he wept over Jerusalem. Because like them, you do not recognize him for who he really is. And because like them, you do not see your need for a savior. And because like them, you have not responded to the call of the king's love with all of your heart. That's why he weeps over you. Out of love, those are tears of love, anguish for, for, for the God that created you and his desire to recreate you and call you home to a life of love and faith and hope. And I hope you would come up and receive prayer if you want to get to know him and respond to those tears of love. The Father just calling you home. And if you already know Jesus, and you already know he's written into your life, He's already claimed your heart under his lordship, then um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer two prayers for you today as I was praying and uh, preparing this message. As some of you, I think some of you are in need to get on the same page as the Lord because you're going through something difficult now and you don't have his angle. You don't have his angle on this. You have another angle and it's making you disillusioned. It's making you fearful. It's making you angry, perhaps. It's making you impatient. And some of you are like, Lord, I just need to get on the same page. What are you doing here? Lord, let me see things from your angle as best I can, even if it's just the next step. So when we have a, when we, uh, have a time of prayer, we, I want to invite you to come up to receive prayer for that. Um, and also, if you do know Christ, here's my other prayer for you. Some of you have a difficult time, like we mentioned before, bearing witness to the world uh, through the power and love of Jesus in your life. Now, I don't want you to go through your neighborhood and wave one of these because they'll just think you're weird, right? But there's others, there's beautiful ways to bear witness without waving palm branches. Um, like I mentioned before, it's sharing, sharing love, serving your neighbors, going out of your way, going the extra mile, um, having the fruit of the Spirit on a tree, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the whole list, the fruit of your tree. These are the things that glorify God and draw people uh, to Jesus. I love what Jesus said. Um, in the middle of all the hosanning, this, uh, this uh, is in another gospel, the, the Pharisees come up to Jesus, and the throngs of people going nuts, and they said, Jesus, make all these people shut up. Make, just rebuke them. And Jesus gave that classic line. He said, if they keep quiet, I tell you that even the rocks will cry out. Because here's the deal. Jesus will not be denied his glory. And even if the rocks will cry out, God will get his glory. But guess what? He created you to his glory. Do not, some of you are waiting for rocks to bear witness in your place. That's no way to live. Jesus wants you to do that with your life. And maybe some of you feel like, I need some help to do that. Well, that'd be a good opportunity for prayer. God, this is Holy Week. Don't let a rock take your place. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.